please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110 or in your phones. This morning we'll be following along with a study guide written by our dear friend Tom Kelby. It looks like this. His study guides are some of the easiest to read and most insightful you will ever find. This one is $15 plus $6 shipping, or, uh, and you may order or download it for free from the website written here on the whiteboard in just a moment. Handstotheplow.org. Handstotheplow.org. I will be quoting him directly at times. Psalm 110. This poem is one of the most wonderful and fascinating prophecies about Jesus in the entire Hebrew scriptures, aka the Old Testament. It had men and women of God studying it, wondering about it, and debating about it for no less than 10 centuries until the coming of Christ in the world when we saw Jesus as the image of the invisible God. So this morning, we're going to do what God's people have been doing for about 3,000 years and counting, and we're going to study Psalm 110. Please stand and give your attention to the reading of the written word of God, because if Christ does not come back soon, you're going to have to explain this puzzling psalm to your teenager one day. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. We may be seated, except for me. Thank you. So, if you have Psalm 110 uh, on a Bible or on a device in front of you, uh, please look at it. We're going to study it together, beginning by looking for repeated words, and then moving to repeated ideas and themes, so that we can get a sense of what this is about. Then we'll go through verse by verse. Then we'll answer some basic questions. So go ahead and uh, maybe raise your hand, and if I look at you, that's good enough. Uh, just shout out. Uh, uh, key words, repeated words that you see. Lord. Okay, Lord. Which one? In verse uh, 1, first line, there are two Lords, right? So Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and then Lord, L-O-R-D. Cap, okay. What does it say up on the on the slide, if we have verse 1 on the slide. The Lord says to my Lord. How about that? Okay, so we have two different characters there, and they're both lords. Or so it seems. What else? Two different names for the same one. Yeah. What else? It's repeated throughout the psalm. Lord, 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 Lord. Two different names, yeah. What else? What other words do you see repeated as you scan through it? Enemies, yeah. So we've got a Lord 
and we've got enemies. What else? Right hand. Right hand. Yeah, right hand is an important one. Will. He will. There's, there's action. There's definite action. There is unquestionable and unavoidable action coming or happening or happened. Right? What else? Priest. Priest forever. Ah, that's a good one. He, yeah, he and Lord are both repeated over and over. Uh, most of the phrases, most of the sentences begin with Lord or he, indicating that this psalm is talking about somebody and it's really, really emphasizing him and it's about him and, and it's not, it, all our attention should be on this guy on who he is, right? There are two different he is. That's very good. As in the two names for Lord here. Yeah, he and he. If you're just coming in to join us, we're looking at Psalm 110. Welcome. The word your, he possesses and owns things. There's ownership, there's lordship, there's rule, there's power. Enemies. He has a right hand. Why a right hand? What does that mean? Raise your right hand if you're right-handed. That's like almost everybody. So your right hand in the scriptures, in the, the Hebrew concept of the right hand, represents, who said it? Strength. Yeah. Strength, power, capability. You do things with your right hand. So if your right hand is doing something, something's being done. Not to make that too simple and obvious. Um, So he's a doer and he has capability. I see shattering. There's some shattering happening here. A shattering of kings in verse 5. In verse 6, a shattering of chiefs or heads. It says shatter the head in Hebrew if you look at your little footnote there. That's important. What else? Any other repeated words? Okay, let's move to John. Says or sworn. So somebody's doing something, somebody's saying something, and somebody is something and is being identified as who he is. And that's what this is about. We'll get to the details. Repeated themes. What are the themes here? Jeff. Scepter and king. Yeah. Yeah. So there is the concept. There is our first and primary theme in this psalm. Ruling. We have ruling with a scepter and being a king. And then other kings. Give me a theme here. You need to get... Ten of them. Royalty. Royalty. Yeah. Royalty. Kingship. Kinghood. What's another one? If you, again? Supremacy. supremacy. Yeah. Absolute supremacy. What's another one? A completion at the end. you just got a great conclusion. I'm not going to say that on the tape, um, but Daniel uh, Williams' point is very good, and you'll hear it at the end because it's a surprise. Defeat. The theme of conflict. There's a war here. There's a fight. There's battle. There's, there's defeat. There's shattering. Let's say crushing, right? It's a bad defeat, okay? I want you to imagine a couple of warriors in battle, and they've got shields and spears or swords, and the one smacks the other guy's sword or uh, a shield hard enough that the whole shield splinters into fragments, right? I'm thinking like maybe Zulu warriors or something, right? Because their shields aren't metal. Um, so, uh, 
So imagine two guys sword fighting, and the, their swords collide in the air, and the one short, the one person's sword shatters, but it doesn't just, like, the tip break off. Like, the sword itself is a weaker sword, and its weapon can't stand against the weapon of the greater warrior, and the, it shatters. And then what happens to the lesser warrior? He himself is broken, quite literally. We'll get there. Other themes. Go. Yeah, judgment. Yeah. Sam said judgment. There's, there's a judging happening here. What else? Command. Ah, that's very important. Morgan says command. There's the theme of the, the big Lord saying to the, the Lord beside him, uh, he's giving him a command, and the, the Lord beside him is going to follow it completely and see that it is uh, brought about to completion. Is that a hand back there? No? You're just stretching? Okay. Um, there's a willingness versus opposition. Look at verse 3. We have some people offering themselves freely to this Lord who's coming, right? And then look at, uh, look at uh, verses five, through five and 6. There's war. When there's war, you're obviously not surrendering yet. You're fighting. In this case, it's a fighting to the bitter end, and it's a loss. So there's Willingness versus opposition to this Lord. Um, Olga said priesthood. There's judgment, and with that, we're going to wrap judgment and death together. We see corpses, and we see people or a, a head, a chief or chiefs, being shattered. That's, that's a bad judgment. That's a negative judgment. What about... Um, what are the first two words of verse 3? What? Your people. What are the last two words of the first line of verse 6? The nations. We have your people and we have the nations. There are two people groups here. There's this ruler with two names and then there's your people and the nation. So we have a theme of two different people groups here. Um, uh, what about the relationship, the theme of the relationship of the Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, to the Lord who commands him, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, right? There's a theme of the relationship um, in, uh, in verse 1 between Lord and this ruler, right? Do you recognize a theme from Psalm 23 repeated here um, in the last line of verse 2? It says, rule in the midst of your enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is a repeat theme, and we looked at this theme very closely last week when we studied Psalm 27. Being in the midst of enemies or in the midst of trouble. And in fact, David wrote this psalm too. Then we have the theme uh, of pursuit unto victory. Um, Daniel alluded to that. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we have some questions to answer. Who's writing this down? Who's decreeing? Who's doing the decrees? Who's coming like due? And who's being done in? First of all, who's writing this down? We just said it. It's David. David is what? He's a writer. He's a, he's a what? He's a king. He's a, he's a warrior. He's a poet. He's a man, priest. Yeah, he, so he did things that the priest did, unlike uh, other kings as far as I know. Very interesting. Normally, the kings were kings and the priests were priests. David did some priestly things. This one does all the best of the priestly and all the greatest of the kingly things. What else is David? Shepherd, father, prophet. He's a prophet. 
how does David, writing in roughly the year 1000 BC, and we say BC, not BCE, because BC means before Christ, and BCE is dumb, so, <laughs> so we're not going to go along with that cultural phenomenon right here. Um, how does David, writing 1000 years BC, know so much about him? Special revelation. He's a prophet. What does it say in First Peter about the writers of the scriptures? Greg. <laughs> I knew you'd know it. Holy men moved by the ho- uh, spoke. Can you say that again? Holy, holy men spoke by the Holy Spirit as they were inspired by the Spirit. The idea is carried along by the Spirit. So here's this guy. He's a guy like us, right? He's a regular person like us. There's nothing unusually supernatural about him except that he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, which makes him a prophet, which makes him able or um, um, conscripted to write God's thoughts down in advance before he brings them about. And so for about 1,000 years, the people of God studied these words and wondered. They wondered because these words, it's clear, are about a coming ruler, and he's like the big-time ruler, and he's going to absolutely, like, completely sweep the playing field, and there will be nobody left against him. So, who uh, is doing the decreeing, who's telling this ruler to do this? Verse 1. Yahweh. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, R, capital D in the scriptures, that's how we write in English translations of the Bible, the proper name of God, Yahweh. It's I am who I am. This is the guy, the, the one who, who is and who was and who is to come. He is almighty and eternal God, eternally existent. And he says to who? To, to David's Lord. To this guy that David is calling my Lord. Hmm. How did Jesus interpret that? Who knows? Jesus preached on this in the temple in front of the Pharisees. They were trying to trick him and ask him all these hard questions. And so he asked them a question. And he said, uh, he he, uh, referenced Psalm 110 and he says, how does David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, call, call the Christ my Lord? That's what Jesus preaches. So what does that tell us we're supposed to think about this psalm? What does this prove Jesus thought of the identity of the one David called my Lord? He's the Christ. So Jesus preached a sermon that said, the my Lord at the end of the first line of verse 1 is the Christ. We should interpret this that way too. Do you remember the rest of uh, Jesus' sermon to the Pharisees and those in the temple that day? Anybody remember? Wifey? You do. He was asking, how is he, the Christ, David's son? Because we know that the Christ is the son of David. How do we know that? It was prophesied where? In the Bible, in the book of... In the book of Second Samuel 7, and that verse 2. So, uh, so what did it say? Um, in 2 Samuel 7, um, it was a prophecy to Solomon, right? Or to David? To David. You will never lack a man to sit on the throne. And, but one will come from your own body. So that's, that's not a real disputable passage. So a descendant of David was, uh, one counted as David's descendant, was going to sit on David's throne forever. So... What happened? Uh, who was David's uh, son who sat on the throne after him? All right, Solomon. Okay, descendant, check. Uh, was he the righteous son they were waiting for? 
Not really. He committed all the sins. Moses said a king shouldn't do this, right? Yeah, that was a tragedy. Well, what about the kings that came after him that were descendants of David? Progressively worse. You had a few bright spots in there. And then what? And then no king. So, so no genetic descendant of David sitting on the throne of Israel. In fact, Israel was deported to Babylon, deported to Assyria and Babylon, scattered among the nations. So is Israel a monarchy today? Okay. So something happened in that country, um, and it became a totally different kind of country. And the king reigning under God, who was descended from David over the, the then nation of Israel, that, that passed away, and it's not there anymore like that. There's a country. There are uh, Hebrew descendants there. Uh, it's not a monarchy. It's not, it's not the Israel that we're looking at here. This doesn't say in verse 3, Israel will offer themselves freely. And in verse 6, he'll execute judgment among the non-Israeli nations. It says, your people. It doesn't say the United States. It doesn't say the United States. It doesn't say Israel. It doesn't say Israel. And when it says the nations, it doesn't say non-Jews. It doesn't say goyim, right? It doesn't say Gentiles. It doesn't say non-Christian. It doesn't say any of those things. So there are two people groups. Okay. Um, so we see who's doing the decreeing here. It's Yahweh himself. Um, who's doing the decrees? Who's carrying them about? Carrying them out. The Messiah. The Christ. The anointed one. The ruler. At the end of verse 1, my Lord. Right? Um, Who's coming like dew? In the end of verse 3. Yeah, that's a, your footnote says um, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain after that phrase. We see in the first half of verse 3, uh, your people will offer themselves freely, right? So they're, at least they are descending like dew on the ground, upon the area. They're coming from everywhere. Where are they coming from? From the, verse 3, from the womb of the morning. Okay? So there's some imagery we don't use every day. Uh, where does the sun rise? East. Where, where is the sun before it rises in the east? Easter. <laughs> So, one possible understanding of this difficult-to-translate verse is that your people are coming on the day of the power of the Messiah, which is, we know, today and every year, right? And they're coming, and they're freely offering himself. These are the people of the Messiah coming to, the, coming to Christ and offering themselves freely, taking up their crosses and following him. It's us. And they're coming from a long ways away, north, south, east, west. Um, it's interesting that he says the womb of the morning here, if that's being understood correctly, then that means from the east. And it traditionally means it's, there's a concept or a theme in the Hebrew scriptures that uh, when you go east, you're going away from the presence of God. And when you come back, you're coming towards the garden, towards the temple, towards the, the center of where God is with his people. So maybe that means that. That's a good question. It's hard to know that. Um, who's being done in at the end of this? Who's getting killed? Who's being turned into a corpse? The chiefs of the nations. Yeah. So the nations here are defined as um, being the opposite of your people or the people of Christ. Christians. So these are those who are not the, do not belong to Christ, with whom he does not identify and on whom he does not bestow his name. Hmm. So let's go through verse by verse and make observations further. 
the Lord says to my Lord. So we have here, I am. This is the Father in heaven. And then my Lord. And the Father is speaking to the Christ. And he says what? Sit at my right hand. So who sits at the right hand of God? Who sits at the right hand of a king? You got a throne, you got a king in the old days, and, and he calls somebody up and he says, sit at my right hand. Who's, who's going to sit at his right hand? The prince. The prince. The one who is to rule with him and whose rule is a part of and inseparable from that rule of that kingdom. It's the prince. Until when? Until I make your enemies your footstool. Does anybody remember in Joshua 10 when, uh, when Joshua was fighting against five Amorite kings and God made the sun stand still and God caused them to have victory over the, uh, Joshua and the people to have victory over the Amorite kings and they chased them down, but as they were chasing them down, God sent large hailstones that killed more of them than Joshua and his men, than the, their swords killed. So the victory, of course, belonged to the Lord from start to finish. He made the sun stand still so that the battle could be finished. Joshua found the five kings of, uh, of, the, of the, these uh, armies hiding in a cave, and so he told his men, we can't stop. We got to keep going until we completely conquer and he told everybody to take rocks and what? Close up the cave. So real quick, they paused, covered the mouth of the cave with rocks so they couldn't get out. Then they went on, finished the battle, and then they came back, and Joshua brought out the five kings and had them probably bound and lying on the ground before the chiefs of Israel. And he told them all to come forward and place their feet on the necks of the Amorite kings. And they did so. It was, a, it was a kind of a crushing defeat that probably didn't feel good on their necks. There's, there's some violence here, right? There's a, a death that took place. These Amorite kings were killed. Um, and they were brought in complete submission. And the chiefs that came up and put their feet on their necks represented, they were, they were chiefs because there were tribes, and each tribe has a chief and a family head, and so as the chiefs came forward, they, figuratively speaking, represented all of the people. There was a total crushing here. Hmm. So, so this Christ is going to do the same thing. He's going to completely... This isn't a footstool that's like up here, and you, it's not an ottoman, right? You're not leaning in your recliner and putting your foot up on an ottoman. That's not the footstool we're talking about here. This is saying they're like a footstool, but they're not a footstool. They're still, they're still real enemies, and you're actually going to put your feet on them. It's a, it's a crushing of the head, right? A destruction of the head of the enemy. The Lord sends forth from Zion, verse 2, your mighty scepter. What's a scepter? We're going to repeat all that for everybody who missed that on the tape. Thank you. Um, so a scepter is what? It's, a, it's like a staff. It's what? It represents your rule. Yeah, so it's like probably a metal, gold, or overlaid with gold. It probably has very precious stones on it. A king holds it. When he is ruling, uh, he makes motions with it 
to represent his judgments. So if he's seated on his powerful throne, lifted up above everybody else, and he extends his scepter or motions with his scepter, these are ruling actions. So when it says the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, we have to know where Zion is and what Zion is. What's Zion? Jerusalem. What else is it? God's holy city. What else is it? A mountain. What else is it? It's the capital. What else? It's what? It's representative of God's people. So city or city full of people on a mountain. Jerusalem was built on a mountain. In Scripture, the word Zion, like you said, is representative of the place where God dwells among his people. It's represented with the people themselves. It's represented with the whole country. It's Zion in the Bible can refer to the whole country of Israel, a.k.a. the whole realm of God's people or the capital city, or all, and, it often, uh, and all of the above. So this is where God is in the midst of his people, and it is his people. So when it says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, that means God's people are participating in the reign of the Christ. And that reign, as represented by the scepter, going out and extending over everybody everywhere progressively, shows that this Christ is ruling everywhere, starting with Jerusalem and then all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 2, right? Or 1. And the people are ruling with him. So the end of verse 2 says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Why doesn't it say, rule and your enemies are all gone? Because it says that at the end, right? There's the shattering and execution of judgment. And there's a death in verse 6 uh, of, of corpses, right? But in verse 2, it's almost like they're still there. We talked about this last week when we studied Psalm 27. Here, in this time, this Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is ruling. His enemies are being made under his feet, uh, a crushing of, of their head, right? And they're still there. Do you have enemies in your life? Do you have temptations and snares? Is there an evil one who plagues us? Is he still there? Is he ruling? Is he the king of the world? Is Satan the king of the, king of the world? Why not? How do you know that? That's a very popular doctrine that God is the king of heaven and Satan is the king of the world, and someday God will come back and become king. Right? It's very popular. How do we know that's not true? It's the modern church, Greg says. Yeah. So, so we're not going to identify with that doctrine. We're going to be Christ's people because it says your people here. We want to be your people. We don't want to be the people who are outside the rule of Christ. We are the people who reject that doctrine and who affirm that Christ is ruling. We know that from, well, it's like the theme of the whole Bible. Okay, so. The whole idea of the scepter ruling in your midst, again, is a theme that goes all the way through. Greg says, go ahead. Moses' rod that budded and Aaron's rod that budded that were put in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Thank you. Greg just said um, the, that Moses ruled with Aaron's staff while they were still in Egypt, and he did mighty wonders at the hand of God among the Egyptians before they were brought out of slavery. The ruling began while they were still surrounded by enemies, right? And then it continued in Psalm 23, uh, David speaks of the Christ again, and he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
What's a rod? It's a club. It's the thing held by the ruler of the sheep, right? It's a dangerous and protective thing representing his control. The the weapon represents the control and the strength of the warrior. The scepter is is a symbolic club, right? You don't have to beat somebody over the head with it. You can motion, and that guy's head will be chopped off, right? So... So the theme continues in Psalm 23, um, and then, uh, Greg, I didn't, I can't remember the last thing you said, but uh, um, the theme continues through Scripture that the ruling occurs in the midst of enemies. Um, Look at verse 3. So we see a people coming willingly, taking up their crosses and, and laying down their lives in the day of the power of the Christ, which is this day. So this Christ is a warrior, we have seen. So who are his people then, who are coming to him for the battle? We with him are warriors. We are fighters in a fight, and we're ruling in the midst of the fight as our enemies are being defeated before us and around us. The fight's not over. Why are they wearing holy garments? Think back to Leviticus. Who wore holy garments? Priests. Priests wore holy garments. So we've got a warrior king, and he has, for warriors, for soldiers, he has priests. Where in the Old Testament did priests fight battles? Several places, right? Um, there, are, there are several different occasions where the priests went out in front of everybody else, and they worshiped. And then the warriors, presumably with, you know, the little um, fuzzy thing still on the top of their spear and their sword still uh, sheathed and their shield still hanging on their backs because they weren't going to need those things, uh, followed the priests. And before the worship, the enemies fleed or the enemies fought each other to the death, right? Does anybody remember some of those passages? Uh, I think uh, with King Asa and the rest aren't coming to mind, but Jericho, yeah. Yeah, Jericho, even crossing the Jordan, the priest went in first. And the mighty river that would have swept them away like a flood became not a flood, but dry ground. Same thing happened in, uh, as, uh, as Moses, who had priestly duties, went ahead of the people, um, extended the, the rod or scepter over the, um, uh, the Red Sea. So they're wearing holy garments because they're priests. So that's us. Um, the scripture says that we are a kingdom of priests. So here in the New Testament, we see the theme continued of a kingdom under a king and of a priesthood. It calls us a holy priesthood, a chosen people, right? They're also wearing holy garments because they are holy. They aren't just priest garments, they're actual holy garments. Does anybody remember a sermon preached at GCF a couple of years ago on Zechariah chapter 3? My wife's nodding her head. Thank you for remembering that. It was my first one. So, so we, talked about, um, we talked about Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him, and Joshua was clothed in, clothed in filthy garments. So here we have this high priest who can't do his priestly duties because he's filthy. And if he were to go to the temple like that to make atonement and offer sacrifices and gifts on behalf of the people, the Lord would have struck him dead because he wasn't worthy. He wasn't wearing the holy garments that a priest had to. They had to be clean. And, and then this messenger of Yahweh, this angel of the Lord, who is Christ himself, came with a message from God, and it was a message to Satan. While Satan was standing at Joshua, the high priest's right hand to accuse him, and he said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. And he, he asserted that he himself had pulled Jerusalem, the city and people of God, represented by Joshua, the high priest, like a burning stick out of the fire before it finished burning up. Was it smoldering? Yeah. Was it like about to, be, uh, to have judgment completed over it? Yeah. He pulled it out and he said, and he claimed ownership of Joshua and the high priest and therefore of the whole people. And then he commanded that holy garments, that pure vestments, it says, be brought to the high priest and that the filthy garments be removed from him. 
And we saw this as a picture of the gospel of Christ himself giving us his righteousness, he who knew no sin, and we who were filthy, in Paul's words, even my righteousness is like filthy rags, right? We saw the filthiness being removed from us and the holy clothes of Christ being placed upon us. In Revelation 19, do you know the passage where it says, uh, fine linen, bright and clean, was given them to wear? Fine linen stands for the righteousness of the saints. Whose righteousness was it? It was the Christ given to us. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Um, at this point, uh, Tom Kelby in his study uh, asks, what does the dew of your youth mean? It's hard to know. A quick look at other English translations, which are based on the Hebrew text, demonstrates that scholars struggle with this phrase. Perhaps the Septuagint is at help here. That's the, an early Greek translation of the Hebrew text, right? It very well may be the better reading here. The Septuagint renders the, renders the second half of verse 3 as follows. From the womb, before the dawn, I have begotten you. In other words, this line of poetry is talking about Yahweh begetting the Christ from before time began, i.e. before creation. This should immediately remind us, remind the reader of the psalm, um, the reader of the Psalms of Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In this passage, we see three different identities of the Christ. We see that he is the ruler. We see that he is the begotten son. And we're going to see in verse 7 that he is not only God, but that he is man. And we see in verse 4 that he is priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In Israel, who were the priests? Levites, right? They were Levites from the tribe of Levi, descended from uh, and related to Aaron, right? Who else were priests in Israel in the old days? Nobody. So why then um, did, uh, well, who was a priest before Aaron and the Levites were ever priests? Moses, okay. Another one? Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? He's a kingly guy, okay. Who met Melchizedek? Abraham. In Genesis, uh, Abraham comes back from victoriously fighting uh, these kings that had taken captive his people. And out from Salem, which is probably Jerusalem, comes a man identified as priest of God Most High. And his name is Melchizedek. He's Melchi means king and Zedek means righteousness. He's a king of righteousness, right? And he's the king of Salem and Salem means peace. Jerusalem, Salem means peace. So where did he come from? Who knows? It doesn't tell us who, where he was born or who his mom or dad was. It doesn't give us a genealogy of him, unlike other important figures in, uh, in the scriptures. There's no genealogy for this Melchizedek guy who's a priest of God, right? And he's this righteous and kingly feller. And there's a transaction. Uh, Moses uh, pays a tithe to him, right? And then Melchizedek blesses him. And of course, it's the greater who blesses the lesser, the author of Hebrews says. Right? So this guy came 400 years before all the priests of the Old Testament. And we don't know where he came from. Where, when, you know, uh, we don't know his lineage, his uh, genealogy. We don't know when he died or when his priesthood ended. The point that Hebrews brings out in chapters 5 through 7 is that we're not supposed to. There's the order of priests in the Bible who are of the Levites. And from Aaron, who through that golden and out came that golden calf to all of his wicked descendants, Eli, and all of the other priests who never measured up to the qualifications of high priest what like they should have. 
Then we have this other priesthood in the Bible, and it's this Melchizedekian priesthood. This guy, who knows where he came from? So God, in his wise writing of the scriptures, planned that there would be this priest who came before all other priests, um, who had no genealogy or, or um, apparent end of his life or end of his priesthood. He's sort of a priest out of place, removed from the regular human priests. So God the Father swears to Christ the Son and will not change his mind. That's very strong language. That's only used a couple times in the scripture where God swears. Does God lie? No. Does God have to make oaths? No. Here he's making an oath. He's really trying to bring home this point that this Christ is not just king, he's priest, and he's priest forever, and he didn't come, he wasn't descended from human priests, and his priesthood, like Melchizedek's, figuratively speaking, will not end. Then we come to the battle where this king priest does what he came to do. The Lord is at your right hand, verse 5. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Look at your footnote for Psalm 110.6. There should be a little D if you're reading the ESV. It says, or the head. He will shatter the head over the wide earth. In Genesis 3, we see the first promise of the Christ, the Christ who was to come. And of him it is said, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will take his heel and crush the head of the snake. That's, that means he's dead. If you get your head crushed, you're not going to get taken to the ER. You're going to get taken to the Morgan and body bag, Right? There's no living serpent left. This is a complete and total defeat. We said we're living in the time when Christ is ruling in the midst of his enemies, but this king and this priest is going to certainly, the prophet David says, bring about that which he started. And having made us warriors with him and priests with him, ruling over sin and ruling over the devil, and having himself received the judgment that we, his people, deserved. Not only, as Isaiah 63 says, you'll have to look that up, we don't have time to go there. Um, it says that uh, a warrior went out and his garments were red with blood. He trampled uh, the wine press, right? Christ's garments are red, not only from battle, because he smashed Satan and his kingdom completely and is smashing it and will finish doing that soon. But also, his garments are red because he himself was bruised. His head was not crushed, but his heel was bruised. In his garments, on which he bled, became the atonement for our sins, or he himself became the atonement for our sins. We are wearing righteous garments or holy garments in verse 3 because he has bought us with his own blood. We finally come to verse 7 and we find that this person who is with God in heaven ruling, who therefore can only be God, this Christ, is also doing something that only humans do. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, does God get hungry and thirsty? No. But this Christ got thirsty. Did he get thirsty because he was chasing down his enemies, like uh, David and the Israelites chased down the Philistines after uh, uh, their champion Goliath was destroyed? Like, is he stopping to rest before the battle's over? You have to guess. No, it's a good guess. He's already completely scored the touchdown. The, the victorious uh, football player does not go to the sidelines to get a drink before the play is over. He scores the touchdown, and after winning the game, then he goes and he gets a drink. He rests. 
Here we see the Christ resting and getting a drink like a man. He's not getting a drink because he ran out of living water. He's getting a drink because he's done. This shows rest. He's finished. The battle is won, and he, having become a man like us, is joining with us and becoming a source for the water of life from which we drink. So how does he conquer? Let's say, how do we conquer with Christ? It says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So we probably don't conquer by going out to other countries with swords and guns and getting in a battle. We join the fight by ruling over sin. He conquers with the blood of Christ. He conquers his enemies by winning them to be a part of his kingdom. He will ultimately conquer by completely physically destroying his enemies. In this psalm, the prophet David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, invites us to take our own feet and place them on the neck of the enemy. The sin that ceaselessly tries to ensnare us, put your foot on it. The lie that wants to buy sin's empty promises, put your foot on it. The demonic power that deceives the world and attempts to rob our joy, put your foot on it. And even Satan himself, one day soon, the God of peace will tell us, put your foot on him. It says in Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing about all the things that you have in your heart. And we thank you that we have this psalm as prophetic assurance that your, that your son, the Christ, our ruler, is going to completely finish the battle that we cannot win. And we know that you will use all things, including the fight of life and the fight against temptation and sin in which we find ourselves for our good. And we know that you will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. We pray that you would cause us to see your son as exalted and glorious and to find him beautiful and to fall at his feet in worship, having full confidence that he is capable of doing everything he has, that you have sworn he will do. In Jesus' name, amen.